Now, I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11. And uh, <clears throat> I did not want to skip over uh, anything that I had planned to speak on, so we're uh, actually a week behind the reading. For some of you, that's good news, because if you're lagging, <laughs> you've got an opportunity uh, to catch up, and uh, next week we'll be looking at 21 through 30, and uh, then 31 through 40, and so on. And having said that, um, I, I want to say that this is an artificial division that I am imposing on the book of Isaiah. Um, <clears throat> really, in this passage, probably uh, chapters uh, 9 through uh, 15 or so really go together as a unit. And then after that, uh, another unit and segment. And so um, the way we're approaching Isaiah it does not fall into the natural divisions of the book because I want to cover the 10 chapters that we have been reading. And so um, as you're reading, bear that in mind uh, that... The book may have other, uh, a different kind of sense of flow to it than what we're covering on Sunday. And then lastly, uh, by way of uh, preliminary comments, um, we're going to cover ten chapters a week. Now, <clears throat> I have in my library the three-volume set by Edward J. Young. It's about that thick. And uh, then I have some other devotional commentaries that are about that thick. And uh, you can uh, spend a few minutes in a chapter, or you could spend weeks. I, I think I could easily uh, spend three or four years preaching through Isaiah if I wanted to touch every verse. And, and that's not possible in this study. We want to kind of have a first of the year reading together and, and overview together. So all we're going to be able to do is look at some high spots. And I hope that gives you enough of a sense of the lay of the land that you can uh, hang the rest of it around it and, and get a picture of what's going on in Isaiah because it really is one of the most wonderful books of the Bible, if you can say that. I, I don't know that you can say that. All of them are the words of God, but in the New Testament, I'm a little partial to Romans. And in the Old Testament, I'm a little bit partial to Isaiah. So... Uh, as we have looked at previous studies, uh, the first seven or so chapters of the prophecy, recall, are an overview. They're a snapshot of what the rest of the book is going to deal with in detail. And uh, as we begin to drill down and look at some of the specifics, uh, we come into these chapters today. Isaiah is the most often quoted prophetic book in the New Testament. That, that may come as news to you or not. But he had so much to say about New Testament events that he is the most often quoted. And his prophecy contains more messianic prophecies than any other single book. Of course, it helps if you have 66 chapters. Uh, that just gives you sheer numbers on your side, but um, he has more messianic prophecies uh, than anyone else. So, as we study Isaiah, 
naturally we're going to be looking at portraits of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be seeing things about him that uh, God has revealed ahead of time. Isaiah wrote uh, roughly 700 years before Christ, 700 to 750 years before Christ. Uh, Liberal scholarship has divided it up into two sections and some three that uh, want to take some of the rather detailed prophecies and put them after the events and assign them to some uh, unnamed prophet because they don't believe in divine inspiration. But we know that uh, God cannot lie, that his truth, his word is truth. And that Isaiah prophesied all 66 chapters 700 or so years before the birth of Christ. And he not only saw into the future regarding the birth of Christ, but he saw into the future regarding the second coming of Christ. So there are three highlights in chapters 11 through 20 that I want us to consider this morning. First of all, a most wonderful truth, then a most tragic truth. And if you've done your reading, you'll be with me on this, a most strange truth in chapter 20. In Isaiah 11, it says, A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now, if you recall what happened in chapter 10... The scripture says in verse 33 of chapter 10, the Lord, the God of hosts will lop off the boughs with a terrible crash. Those also who are tall in stature will be cut down and those who are lofty will be abased. He's speaking of the kings of Judah and of the people of Judah. And he will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe And Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. So there's this uh, imagery of a forest that God is going to raise. He's going to cut it down. And it represents the leadership and the foolish ones of Judah who are following the ungodly offspring in the dynasty of David. But then he says in verse uh, 1 of chapter 11, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Now, here's the image. You have this forest that has been raised, kind of like they did logging a number of years ago in our country, where they cut down everything. And all you see are stumps just uh, a foot or so out of the ground. And you look across what used to be a forest, and you just see these stumps. And you know how sometimes a little shoot will come out of a stump, and it'll be the beginning of of another growth. And from Jesse's stump, his line, there will come a shoot that will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. This is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will be a king after David. David was the son of Jesse. And in Judah, the kingdom never changed families, as God had promised. I I will not remove the righteous scepter from your throne. And David 
and his offspring down through 800 years of uh, the the uh, history of the kingdom in Judah were always occupied by offspring of Jesse. Now, here is Jesus Christ who is coming again and he will be the branch that springs from the root of Jesse and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and he will delight in the fear of the Lord and not judge by what his eyes see nor make a decision by what his ears hear But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips, and he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Isaiah prophesies a king. Now, he's been dealing with a king who has been looking for alliances, a way to uh, bolster their uh, fortifications against the impending uh, advance of Assyria. And he's uh, been considering Egypt as a place to, um, uh, to go for help and, and strength and whatever. And, and this is largely about that dependence on Egypt. Uh, and... Isaiah says this king, this shoot that comes from the root of Jesse, will not rely on human wisdom. He will not rely on the counsel of men. You know, uh, in in Washington, in the White House, uh, they have a situation room. Uh, They bring together the the, uh, various leaders of uh, the NSA and the CIA and, and uh, different uh, Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense and all that. Men rely on counsel. They look to one another to sort of help them shore up their ideas. And Isaiah says this root of Jesse will not need the counsel because he will operate with righteousness and with holiness. And he will have the innate understanding of what is just and appropriate and pure and true. No one will need to counsel him because he will know from his heart and mind what is right. That's different than a human being, you know, that says, I've got all the answers. He does have all the answers, Jesus Christ, our coming King. He does have all the solutions. And when he plants his feet on the Mount of Olives and establishes his millennial kingdom, he will reign with righteousness and justice and truth over all the earth. And Isaiah says the whole world will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. I'll get to that in a moment. But but our Lord Jesus Christ, this is a picture of his second coming. And as he begins to rule not only uh, Judah and Israel, but as he begins to rule the nations of the world, he will do so with perfect understanding and always with righteousness. There will be no uh, backdoor deals, no under-the-table agreements, no uh, off-to-the-side secrecy, 
our Lord Jesus Christ up front and at face value will always rule with justice and with holiness. And He will decide with fairness for the afflicted. And He will strike the earth with the rod of His mouth. I've given you some references. We don't have time this morning to go and look at them individually. But I've given you some references in Revelation that are actually corollary passages. And you can see that what Isaiah is talking about is fulfilled in Revelation as it describes the coming of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so in Revelation 19, this same picture is presented, and there are many parallels between what Isaiah has to say and what uh, Revelation has to say. And then in verse 6, we have some most interesting passages, wonderful passages, that his reign will be a restoration of an Edenic paradise of peace, and peace and harmony will prevail. It is my conviction that before the end of human history as we know it, when the new heaven and the earth and the new earth appears, when all wickedness is banished to the lake of fire, and when we move into eternity with our Lord Jesus Christ to dwell forever with Him and in His presence. Before that time, our Redeemer is in the process of restoring what was lost in the fall and sinfulness of Adam and Eve in the garden. They had a beautiful garden and a beautiful place to live. And the scripture is very plain in saying, I have given you every green plant to eat. Sorry, no prime rib. <laughs> no lamb chops. No bacon. I have given you every green plant to eat. For you and for the animals. They didn't eat each other. They ate vegetables. God put the green plants on the earth to provide the nourishment. There was no kill or be killed. There was no survival of the fittest. Uh, th there was none of that behavior. There was, no, uh, th there was no fear. It was perfect peace. But when they sinned and were banished, the, the enemy began to corrupt all that God had made. And in the process of that corruption, uh, the, the whole earth came under the power of the evil one. Because you see, God had given it to Adam and Eve. This is your world. Rule over it. Subdue it. Uh, have dominion. And they surrendered that. They didn't know that that was part of the fine print of the rebellion, but that's what they did. And so Satan became the rightful ruler of the prince of the powers of the air. And he began to stir up this corruption. And so what we see today, however beautiful nature may be, and it is beautiful, it certainly has great remnants of the glories of God. 
But there are things in nature that are sad and heartbreaking as we watch them. They may have a certain kind of majesty to them, should I say. And yet, when you get down to it, the blood and the gore is, is ugly. Jesus is going to fix it. In the millennial reign, the thousand years that he reigns upon this earth, he's going to fix it. And he's going to restore this Edenic paradise as he brings the whole world under his influence as the second Adam. You know, when you put it all together, when you put all the scripture together, it's just amazing how beautiful it fits. And when he does that, Isaiah says, the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Right now they're enemies. <laughs> but then they'll dwell together. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. Not going to chase him down and bite his neck and kill him. He's going to be together with him. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. A little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Isn't that amazing? The the whole system is going to be changed, and the, the nature of the animals are going to be restored. Not altered, but restored. To be what they were supposed to be. A nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. As the waters cover the sea. In that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. Who will stand as a signal for the people. And his resting place will be glorious. Isn't that amazing? Don't you look forward to that time? I've always wanted to pet a lion. I've always wanted to work my fingers into that mane, you know. Uh, I just think that would be so much fun. I, I just, to, to have pets, you know, like that, that would be so cool. How would you like to have a thousand pound pet or... <laughs> You know, the elephants are your friends, whatever. Um, but God is going to fix it. And it's going to be a beautiful thing. And then it says, all the Jews will be restored to the promised land from the four corners of the earth. Now, earlier in Isaiah, a chapter or so back, it says that God will bring a remnant back. And that was prophesying concerning the end of the Babylonian captivity. I mentioned Assyria, but now I'm talking Babylon. At the end of the Babylonian captivity, <coughs> a remnant will be returning to Jerusalem and to Judah. But in the end times, God is going to Put out a call, as it were. Verse 12, He will lift up a standard for the nation and assemble the banished ones of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. 
in that day, the Lord Jesus Christ will call his people back out of captivity, out of uh, oppression. Uh, I don't know if it's still true, but I, I know at one point uh, there were more Jews in New York than there were in Israel. I don't know if that's the case anymore. I, I doubt it because the population's been shifting. But um, there will come a day when everyone who is Jewish will go back to Jerusalem. There's a time when all of God's people will go back. And, and by the way, we are uh, grafted in uh, to this olive tree that is representative of Israel. And we too will share, uh, not in that literal sense of all the four corners of the earth calling the Jews back to the, to the motherland, but we will share in that restoration as we are co-regents with our Lord Jesus Christ. We will reign and rule with Him upon the earth for a thousand years, and His headquarters will be in Jerusalem. And so we will be together in that day. And finally, uh, verse 13, or chapter 13, uh, brings before us uh, switching to Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, um, that ultimately God would defeat the nations at the end of time. And um, as he explains in that passage, if you go and look at Matthew chapter 24 and some of the parallel passages, uh, Jesus describes this time as his second coming. So in the span of five chapters, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, chapter 9. In the space of about five chapters, we have gone from the birth of Christ in his first coming to the return of Christ in his second coming, as Isaiah paints a picture for us of the Lord's anointed who will bring his glory uh, back to the earth. Now, in chapter 14, we shift to an entirely different kind of uh, subject. Chapter 14 talks about um, Babylon and the oppressor, uh, the king of Babylon. And at first blush, when you read it, it sounds like this is all about an earthly king. And there's another passage in Ezekiel chapter 28 that if you read that, it starts out with Tyre and Sidon, and it almost sounds like it's talking about the earthly rulers. Except, as you move into the description, you realize that it goes beyond a human being. You know, in the, in the tribulation period, at the end of time, the Antichrist, the man of sin who rises up, will be a human being. But he will be filled with Satan. And he will exercise his rule and his judgment under Satan's direction. And one of the things that we need to recognize is that this whole world lies in the evil one. 
it's not finished. There are many passages of Scripture. Uh, Hebrews uh, is one of them. Uh, Corinthians, I, I can think of other passages. Uh, Ephesians. That Jesus is waiting until his enemies have finally been subdued. In other words, there's still a battle raging. And we're in the midst of that battle. And the, the world which is under governments that God frankly raises up and brings down within his control of history appears on the surface from the, uh, from the devil's standpoint to be under his command. Because he incites, he whispers the ideas, he plants the thoughts. Uh, you can be certain that Satan was behind Hitler in his particular hatred of the Jewish people. Because Satan hates them with a, a passion as the people of God. And so, and he hates us as the followers of the Lamb. He hates us. And so we have this image of this earthly ruler that breaks out into descriptions that exceed humanity. For example, um, look at verse uh, 10. This is talking about uh, the ruler descending into Sheol. They will all respond and say to you, even as you have been made weak as we, you have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you and worms your covering. And here's the kicker. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. We are not given detailed uh, imagery concerning what the heavenlies look like in the throne of God. But there are apparently three great angels that appear in Scripture. Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. And the name Lucifer means... The star of the morning, the bright and shining one. Uh, he was among the hierarchy of the heavenly angelic host. And in his rebellion to God, he was cast from his position of heavenly authority down to the earth. And it says, you've been cut down to the earth, you who weaken the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I'll raise my throne above the stars of God. I'll sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. In other words, I'll be equal to, if not greater than God. What did he tempt Adam and Eve with? For he knows that in the day you eat of it, you will be like God. 
his aspiration has always been to usurp the throne of God and to destroy God's creation. And so he says, those of you, those who see you will gaze at you and ponder saying, is this the man that made the earth tremble? Now we're looking sort of at Antichrist again, who shook the kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities and did not allow his prisoners to go home. All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you've been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch, clothed with the slain who are pierced with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit. Like a trampled corpse, you will not be united with them in burial because you have ruined your country and slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers not be mentioned forever. We need to recognize that Satan does not want to give us an alternative power to following Christ. He does not want to give us an alternative way of life. He wants to ruin us. He wants to destroy us. And he does so by constantly tempting us to live contrary to our nature. What do I mean by that? We were made in the image of God. We were designed to be a people that reflect the glory of God. The Ten Commandments are not rules of prohibitions. They're the expression of the character of God which should be observed within us. But Satan offers us all kinds of alternatives, not to give us a different way to live, but to lead us over the cliff. He wants to destroy us. Look at this. Who who destroys their own people? You've ruined your country and slain your people. This is his rulership. This is the way he operates. And all who follow him will enter destruction. And this passage describes why he fell, the the pride, the arrogance of wanting to be God and call his own shots and run his own show. And when God drew the line in the sand and cast him out of his esteemed position, He said, all right, I'll just take your creation with me. I'll destroy the people that you love. I'll ruin the kingdoms of the earth, the animal kingdoms, the the nature that you created with beauty. I will ravage the earth and destroy the people. And I will ruin all that you called beautiful. This is very good. I will destroy it. That's his purpose. And we need to recognize that because we don't have three choices. 
follow God, follow the devil, or follow ourselves. We don't have three choices. We only have two. Follow God or follow the devil. Those are the only two choices we ever have. We were made to be dependent upon the divine. And if we reject the lordship of Jesus Christ, we automatically accept the lordship of Satan. There's no alternative. And his determination is to ruin us. Whereas our Lord Jesus Christ desires to redeem us and restore us and, and, and re- recover within us the purpose for which we are made. And to give us His joy and to give us His peace and to plant within us His Spirit and to give us His gifts. And to make us like what He designed us to be so that we will be immensely fulfilled. And Satan wants everything opposite, but he holds it out there with glitter and gold and tantalizing to lure us away from Jesus, saying, I have a better thing. And then it evaporates and we find ourselves falling off the cliff. At the end of the great tribulation, and if you follow this passage on, like in verse 20, for example, At the end of the great tribulation, the enemy, Satan, will be bound for a thousand years in the abyss, after which he will be released for a short time before being finally banished to the lake of fire forever. Read Revelation 20 later today and see what it has to say about his ultimate demise. And all who follow him. We'll go there. You know, people get disturbed these days talking about hell. God would never send people to hell. Well, God doesn't send people to hell. People go to hell because they they go. They followed the enemy. And God did not create the lake of fire for people. He created it for the devil and his angels. Those who followed Satan in the rebellion. He created the lake of fire for them. But if you're following him, where else is there to go? If you reject the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that he offers, the redemption to cleanse us from sin and restore us to God, if you reject that, where else can you go? You're not going to die. You're going to live forever. Where will you live? There's no choice other than God or the lake of fire. And it wasn't made for us because God hates us. It was made for the devil. God loves us and sent his son that we might have redemption in Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 20, I was uh, talking to Rowena about this chapter, and she said, just skip it. (laughs) Which some commentators did. (laughs) 
Charles Spurgeon never said a word about Isaiah 20. I know, I looked. (laughs) And it says that he never said a word about it. So, some people skipped it. It's pretty bizarre. If you look in chapter 20, it's only uh, like six verses. In the year the commander came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him and fought against Ashdod and captured it. Now, let me remind you of the historical setting. Isaiah is in the southern kingdom. He's in Judah, around Jerusalem. And they are being tempted to put their trust in Egypt to form an alliance to resist Assyria. That, that's the political dynamics. And Isaiah is trying to persuade them through the voice and prophecies of God, don't put your hope in men. Trust in the Lord. Don't go to Egypt for help. Go to God. And so God says, the Assyrians are going to take over Egypt. They're going to run over Egypt and lead them captive. And then where are you going to be? Put your hope in God. Well, they didn't. Actually, they ultimately did resist uh, Egypt to a certain extent, although not all of them. But at that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips and take your shoes off your feet. And he did so, going naked and barefoot. Now, Isaiah was told to live an illustrative prophecy before the people. No matter what you do with this passage, this is a metaphorical prophecy that is intended to demonstrate to the people of Judah what will happen to them if they put their hope in Egypt. And for three years, he ran around naked and barefoot, uttering the prophecies that warned them that they would end up looking like him if they went to Egypt for help. Because the Assyrians were on the way. And they were all going to be in trouble. Now, having said that, being who we are, we get all disturbed about Isaiah running around naked for three years. And uh, so I told Rowena, I said, we're all reading Isaiah. And they read chapter 20. I can't skip it because they read it and everybody wants to know what it means. So uh, let me talk a little bit about it. The Hebrew word is Aram. And I um, don't know if I'm saying that correctly because I'm not a Hebrew scholar. But I did read a few and I talked uh, to um, our brother Green uh, as well, had a conversation with him, and, and we uh, delved into this. What does the word naked mean? And there are, there are several ways that you need to look at a word when you translate the meaning. One is the pure etymology of the word. 
By that I mean the derivation by which a word arises, its literal meaning. And the literal meaning is naked, the way we think of naked, that is, devoid of any clothing. That is the literal meaning. But there is also a social or cultural context in which the word is used that must inform the understanding of the meaning. We use words like that all the time. We don't mean literally what we're saying. We are using words in a metaphorical sense or a simile that... uh, kind of creates the idea. And so, uh, in my conversations and in my studies, um, I looked at a number of commentators on this particular word. I don't have time to read you excerpts, but uh, take my word for it. Uh, Entirely nude is the straightforward meaning. Devoid of all outer garments and shoes stripped down to the undergarment or loincloth is the cultural and contextual meaning. So, was Isaiah completely nude or was he in his underwear? That's what it boils down to. And to the Jewish mind of the day, If you were in your underwear, you were naked. I mean, that's how they viewed that. I read a a number of commentators. Two of them determined that it was total nudity. um, That he was supposed to run around naked. Others, such as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, Brown, Driver, and Briggs, Lexicon Studies, theological word book of the Old Testament, those kinds of scholarly pieces suggest that it was a removal of the outer garments down to the loincloth or the under tunic, and that he was to run around like that, which was socially unacceptable. It would be like you leaving your house in your underwear. And so, however we take the term, you can can go with whatever you're comfortable with, okay? I'm going to leave that up to you. I cannot decide this one for you. It's just, it's out there. You can deal with it however you want. But the result for Isaiah was culturally shameful and personally humiliating. Okay? There is actually an application for us. (laughs) Not, Not that I expect any of you to show up in your underwear next week or less. (laughs) I want you to come fully clothed. Besides that, you can get arrested in our culture. In Isaiah's day, in first century, they would have just shamed you. But uh, you can go to jail if you try that now. But anyway, the application is, God asked Isaiah personally to do something that was socially 
and culturally abhorrent. However he was dressed, if he was even down to his loincloth, it was the dress of beggars or the dress of those who had been robbed and left bare to die. And it was predictive of how Egypt would be carried into captivity by the Assyrians. Now, one of the interesting things about that is we actually have a clay tablet inscriptions of the captivity of Egypt by the Assyrians, and they were horrible people. I mean, I have never seen this on the Internet, okay? I was researching images of the Assyrian captivity and several times I encountered a placard over the the image that said this is too horrific for us to show please visit the British Museum (laughs) well well not a lot of chance of me doing that they were awful people I cannot begin to describe to you the cruelty of the Assyrians in fact Probably since human history began, the Assyrians were the most wicked, evil, destitute people, kingdom on the face of the planet. They were bad. But when they depict leading the captives off in their uh, inscriptions, the captives are wearing the under tunic, the loincloth, bound by a rope, with their hands over their heads, ropes around their wrists, tied one to another, and they're being led away, even by the Assyrians wearing only their tunics. God was saying to Isaiah, I want you to demonstrate graphically what will happen to those who put their trust in Egypt. That's how they're going to end up. And so... I ask you, what are you willing to do in obedience to God? How far will you go to follow His command? Would you sacrifice your dignity? Would you sacrifice your position? Would you accept a place of low humility and derision and shame to be obedient to Jesus Christ? Do you have an attitude like Isaiah that says, Lord, whatever you ask me to do, I will do? With the understanding that Not everyone is going to understand what he's calling you to do. You know, I'll tell you, um, when God called me to preach, my uh, mother, my dad had already died, but my mother wanted me to be a, a doctor. I had planned to be a physician from the time I was three years old. And those were the hopes my mother had for me. And her whole future was wrapped up in that. 
And when I felt God calling me to preach and then go to a humble little school in North Georgia, people said to me very plainly, the scripture says, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. You are disrespecting your mother. You need to follow her directions. And I prayed over that and prayed over that. And, and God had called me through the call of Jeremiah before I formed you in the womb. I knew you before you were born. I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. And I knew that God was calling me to preach. And I knew that it meant that I would have to reject my mother's desires and counsel. Sometimes God calls you to do something that runs contrary to all counsel. You better be sure. You better be sure. You ought to listen to the counsel and weigh it before the Lord. But sometimes you're all alone. How far will you go in obeying God? How far will you go to honor Him? That's the question for us today. How far are we willing to go in obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ? Do you belong to Him? Do you call Him Lord? I'll never forget a message that Peter Lord preached at Tekoa at one point. And from the book of Acts, Peter's response regarding going to Cornelius' house. You remember when the sheet was let down and the word came, Peter, rise and eat. And Peter said, no, Lord. And Peter, Lord, said, no one who ever says no can say Lord. And no one who says Lord can ever say no. Is he Lord? Is he your master? Father, tenderize our hearts that we will be obedient servants of the Lord Jesus. Amen.